Welcome to the Archive Room podcast. Faster my Judith Lay here, once again opening the door to the Archive Room, Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So come on in and let me take you for another gentle stroll down Manx memory lane. You know, the more time I spend in our archive room, the more I realise that the island is blessed with some of the finest storytellers you could wish to hear. Being informative, sharing the facts is important, but at the same time, being able to set a scene to share the humour in a situation is a great gift. But it makes my job incredibly difficult. What to put in and what to leave out. Well, hopefully over these next weeks, as we spend a little time together in the archive room, I'll make the right choices. Celebrating 25 years of serving the Isle of Man and beyond, this is Manx Radio. It's not just the stories that are vintage in the archive room. When that jingle was aired in 1989, I wonder if anyone imagined that we'd one day be getting ready for our 60th anniversary, which, all being well, Manx Radio will be celebrating next year. And interestingly, Krista Berg, who's singing in the background here, is still on our playlist. Living on the island And down in the harbour It's a show Watching all the people As they come and go On the island Living on the island And up in the mountains There are The long arm of the law is stretching into this evening's programme. And once again, I'm indebted to the wonderful David Collister for the legacy of interviews he's left us. And it's his conversations with Arthur Underhill and Hector Duff that we're going to listen to tonight. All about life in the police force. Arthur Underhill was born in Ramsey in 1917. And I joined the police force on the 1st of April 1936. Now, I often wondered whether there was something significant in the 1st of April. <laughs> well, here you are, drawing a police pension, probably for a very long time. Well, there used to be an old chap in Hillary Road, as an old sergeant, Callan Collister, and his proud boast was that uh, he, he drew his pension longer than he served on the police force. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm far more than that now, because... <laughs> in another month or so I'll be 83 uh, uh, and uh, I'm still a, a liability on the taxpayer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you joined the police as a cadet, didn't that's, you? That's right. An, a lowly paid cadet. Oh, we were paid 25 shillings a week. Well, I was sent to Castletown. Well, the going rate in those days for a bottle board and lodgings was 25 shillings. But uh, there was a dear old lady, uh, Mrs. Roberts, I think her name was, in Castletown, and she took me in for 21 shillings. So it left uh, you four bob. Well, that four bob paid me fair from at the weekend. Uh, two shillings 
from Castletown to Douglas and Tushels and Douglas Ramsey. So when I paid my lodgings and my fare home at the weekend, I had nothing. nothing. But once a fortnight, they deducted ninepence for widows and orphans. Right. Well, I can assure you, at, at that age, I was not very much concerned with widows and orphans. <laughs> so I had to get and find ninepence out of my meager savings to make that up. That, that went on for about 18, 18 months or yeah. so. And then, you see, as you, there became vacancies on the force, there was those cadets who were old or had sufficient mm. experience, they, they were taken on. And uh, so you, you, I wasn't awfully long, really, but um, again, then you got three pounds a week. But that was not anywhere near what was paid to constables in England. We always used to gripe about it, but we had no police federation or anything like that to represent no. us. And we never got anywhere. No until Sir Geoffrey Bromot came over as governor and for some reason or other he took this up and uh, he wasn't very popular but he got it through, yeah. uh, through government that we should be paid on the same rates as in England. Whenever I hear his name mentioned I, I stand to attention because <laughs> it, was, it was a terrific increase. Yeah, big lift know. for you. Oh, yes. Yeah. Who was the chief constable in? When you actually were a cadet, first of all... Colonel Maddock. Colonel Maddock. Yes. Now, you had actually met him before you had oh, joined yes, the he post. he interviewed me for the, for, for the post as, uh, as cadet, you see. Yes. The summer before I applied to join the police force, there was a, a joint cricket team from the Douglas High School for Boys and the Ramsey Grammar School who were picked to play... Uh, Archdeacon Stockwood's 11, mm -hmm. <laughs> so you can imagine they were quite old men for a friendly game up at Balamona. So I was picked and, and I was selected to keep wicket. Well, when I was interviewed by Colonel Maddock, he said, I see you play cricket. Yes, sir. And he said, did you ever play against me? I said, yes, sir. And he said, when? And I told him and he looked at me and he said, well, when you were fielding, what, what position did you play? Were you a bowler? No, I said, I kept wicket. And he looked at me and he said, you were the young bugger who stumped me out, were you? <laughs> so I said, yes, sir. <laughs> I thought, on the hill, go and get your bicycle and go home. But rather strangely, late, I, I got the job. Now, what was this this fellow, this chief constable like then? Because he was only, only there a very short time while well, you were in the Well, he was one of the old, the old brigade. And actually, I think when he came here originally, he brought two two police officers with them, and they were mounted now. This is something that uh, I don't think many people ever knew about. It was Sergeant Lancaster and Sergeant Baird. Uh, the, he brought them over, and they were mounted. Well, it was found there was no real use for mounted police over here, and they, they went out, and uh, they, they, these sergeants just resumed street duty. Well, when you started then, what sort of transport did they have, the police here? Well, now... It's always a, a, a bit of a problem, that, that, because people say to me, well, what, how many cars, bikes, and all that you have? Well, you see, it was 1936. We did not have a motorcycle, not a motor car, not a motor van, or anything. And people said, well, how did you get about? Well, I said, you walked, you took a bicycle, you took a bus, or you thumbed a lift. <laughs> now... That was the position when, when we started. And then we got, a year later, we got two Fords, Ford motor cars. And they were these 100-pound motor cars. Yes. 
and they were so small that when you got the likes of Sergeant Katine and even Sergeant Kermin in, in those cars, there was hardly room for a prisoner. When there was a body to be found and it had to be transported to up to the, the mortuary, mortuary, just inside the big double doors on, on police station hill was a handcart and on this handcart was fitted a stretcher and there was an old tarpaulin there. And I can remember a body being washed up on the, on the seafront, uh, just opposite where the palace used to be. And uh, it was decomposed. And two officers were sent with this handcart over, wheel the handcart right along the promenade, down to the shore, get this body and put it on the stretcher, and arms and things were falling off, put them on, and then cover it with this tarpaulin, and then walk along, right along the promenade, at Pebble Square, up the quay, right up through Lake Road to the end of Lake Road, and just put it on a, on, on a slab there. Another person I interviewed said that during the very busy holiday periods, when there were day trippers who got drunk, were being carted on handcarts by the police down the boat. That is true. I, I've yes. seen that happen. I've seen on an August bank holiday, some of them never got beyond the Jubilee clock. They were either in Yates Wine Lodge or in Pebble Hotel or something like that. They never got beyond there. And there used to be a police officer there, and some of them used to go out the back, and they'd get a crate of beer from the back somewhere, and here they were carrying these crates of beer down to the boat, and be a constable there, back, take that back. <laughs> if we were to charge them, we'd be there all day. It was perfectly true. I've, I've seen that happening, yes. Because yes. handcarts were the thing in the town. Oh, then, yes. The porters and all that, yeah. they, they were all handcarts. Yes. And, and lots of the, the shops used to deliver their goods on bicycles uh, and handcarts. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the sort of gear that you had on you at that time when you started. In the early days, I mean, what yeah. were you carrying? You carried truncheon, obviously. Still had the whistle and all that. Oh, too true. You see... You had two sets of uniform, one for summer and one for winter. One was the heavy one was for winter and the light one for summer. And of course, they were fastened right up to the neck so that in a winter's night, you'd be setting off. You'd have your tunic underneath, your great coat, a big heavy great coat, and that was fastened up to the neck over above your tunic. And, uh, and then if it was very wet, you had your cape on top of that, yeah. and your helmet, which was quite heavy, with the, the badge really was heavy. Mm. And then you, you had leggings. You had leather leggings, and they were like cardboard. <laughs> 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 they were laced up, and the water went through them in, a, in half an hour. They were useless, and uh, we had to buy our own boots, and they all had to have a plain toe cap and that sort yeah. of thing. And by the time you'd finished a night, raining all night, your cape would be absolutely soaked and it could stand up on its own. It was that, <laughs> it was that heavy. But strange to relate, it never let a drop of water through. Uh, they were marvelous. Uh, and then you had handcuffs. You had a pair of handcuffs in your hip pocket and then you had your truncheon down the leg of your trousers. Hmm. And these were inspected by the sergeant before you went out to make certain you had them. I can never remember really having to use it unless you, you were bre breaking into some place where there was somebody thought to be unconscious or something. You would, yes. you would break the glass with your truncheon. Mm. And that's the only use I ever saw. I never used, saw it used on a person. There'll be more from Arthur Underhill a little later in the programme.
But let's hear now from Hector Duff, who will long be remembered for his tireless work in schools, talking about the reality of the world wars to young people, using his gift of communication and personal experience to really bring alive the realities of war and the desperate need for world peace. But the majority of his working life was spent in the police force on the island, and that's what he's talking about here again with David Collister. The year is 1947, and David wondered if, in those post-war years, ex-servicemen were perhaps preferred as recruits to the police force. The superintendent at that time was uh, uh, Alfie Kelly, and he, he'd been an ex-serviceman from the first 1418 war, and he, he was rather wanted the ex-serviceman in then, and, and I joined, and I uh, can't say I'm sorry I joined. It wasn't, I don't think it's a job I'd have taken again, because uh, you were working Saturdays, Sundays, Christmas days, and every other day when everybody else was off. Yeah. When you went into police then, was this at Douglas, first of all? Yes, I served all my, all my time was 27 years, I was in Douglas all the whole 27 years. In the old police station in Athol Street, yes, and I was there for two years, then I went to Spring Valley and I had a little area of my own for Braddon and Moran, which I started on a push bike, which meant cycling up to Mount Murray and out to Creeper uh, Bridge and all the Baldwins. And at that time, I was uh, quite a lot to do because the TT testing of cattle was in uh, being then, and of course the men that were, the farms were replacing their cattle from the mainland, and they all had to be isolated, and it was oh. part of the police job to go around. We had to go around visiting all the farms yeah. and seeing that the cattle were properly isolated oh. in incubation period. And uh, I enjoyed doing it. it. It meant that I got to know everybody. I was very fortunate getting to know the farms. I used to get lots of potatoes and turnips <laughs> and that sort of thing, but it was a bit difficult carrying them home on the pushway. <laughs> But there wouldn't be many emergencies in those times, would there? Well, what you call an emergency now? I wasn't very long on the job till uh, I had a lady that committed suicide, shot herself, and uh, I was involved in quite a lot of fatalities on on, on the road. Oh, really? The very first one was um, Tom Quayle, who was the editor of the Mona's Herald. He was knocked over at the bottom of Paul Rosa Road and Peel Road, and I was in, in a lot of incidents like that. And what was the procedure then for someone who was killed? We had to do all that. I eventually progressed from pushbike to a motorbike. And on the panniers, we used to carry a little tin of paint, wax chalk first, then uh, yellow paint. And we had to mark the position of the vehicles when we arrived there and the body. Our first concern, of course, was the injured person if he was injured. And we used to have to see to him if he was dead. He was moved away for the police van. The body was taken to the mortuary and we would have to uh, undress it and prepare it for the pathologist, who was at that time, it was Dr. Joe Ferguson. Mm. And after Joe, it was uh, Dr. Guy Patton used to do it. The doctors didn't used to do it, then Dr. Guy took over. Where was the mortuary at this time? Down Lake Road. Then uh, when we had the body in the mortuary, two policemen were delegated to go with the doctor, and they used to open the body up and uh, the doctor would look and find the cause of death, obviously. And yeah. and then the policemen that were there, they had to st- uh, stitch it up and do all yeah. to get, uh, really? get it ready again for the OAS. Mm. And we, what about living conditions then? I mean, were there always police houses that were provided? No, there weren't always police houses. You know, you had to provide your own. If you lived in Douglas, for instance, you had to... Uh, 
be in a position to get down to take over from the next man on your next tour of duty. If you're above Rosemount, you had to have a bicycle to ensure that you got down to work on time. You had to provide your own bicycle. There were police bicycles which you could use on your beat, but you had to provide your own bicycle to get to and from your work. Could you uh, buy your own house, for instance, rather than live in a police house? Yes, you could buy your own house, but they were difficult to buy then in them days. In my case, I went to buy a house which was uh, £2,200. But to buy that, you had to ask the chief constable. You had to get his permission before you could buy. You had to get his permission to go to live wherever you wanted to live. You couldn't just live in Ramsey as they do now and work in Douglas. No. You had to have, get the chief constable's permission as to where you could live. So you had to have permission to buy a house? Well, you had to have permission. I, yes, I went to buy and the house was 2200 And I went before the superintendent and the chief constable, told them what I wanted, and they said, no, it's too much, too much money for you to borrow. We're not going to allow you to borrow that. And that was in the conditions of service. You weren't allowed to be in debt. One of the little things in the conditions of you had to have a new suit, a decent, respectable suit to go out in, that sort yeah. of thing. So they had a, a fair amount of control over you, what oh, you could and couldn't do. Exactly, though. exactly, yes. Yeah. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't do another job. There were two or three cases that I've known of during my service where the policeman lived where his wife worked and he was told that he either had to move out or he had to resign. So you could be disciplined for things that you did in your own time. In oh, effect, yes. Yeah. Yes, you could. Uh, you could, yes. That all sounds like horrendous discipline all the time, but oh, you yes, must, well, there must have been a bit of fun as well. Yes, with uh, one in particular. It was the life and soul of the party. Mm. Actually, before he joined the police force, he was driving a baker's van, a horse-drawn baker's van. Yeah. And uh, it was at the time when the halt signs were just first put on the road. It used to be stop, not halt. Yes. And he was coming down, driving this baker's van, uh, bread van, down up a church street, turning left into Athol Street. And the stop sign was there. Well, of course, the horse just drove straight on over it. So the poor driver, yeah. he was summoned and, and uh, charged for driving over the halt sign or stop sign without stopping. So he's up before High Bill Johnson, it was at the time. And he was in court and he asked him, did he have anything to say? And he said, the only thing I can say, Your Worship, is the horse couldn't read. <laughs> <laughs> what about lost property, uh, Hector? It was, I mean, there's a lot today, but presumably there must have been a bit in your time as well. Oh, a terrific amount, yes. Oh, I would say more in, in them days than now, because I can't imagine people now that finding purses and odd bits and things going from uh, town up to the police headquarters to hand it in. During a, a monthly period, I would say there would be probably two or three hundred articles handed in a month. Oh yes, oh yes. Uh, what yeah. sort of things then? Well, everything you could, valuable stuff as well. Mm. But we had hundreds of keys, for instance, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Lot, bicycles are busy bicycles, now. Bicycles, yes, or an awful lot of bicycles. Good yeah. bicycles too. Yeah. Never claimed. We used to have a police sale, and the police were allowed to buy it. But then they, they after a while, they decided it wasn't a, a good thing. So. Yeah. They're all sold by tender now to whoever submits a tender. I can I can remember on uh, one occasion there's some uh, money going missing, and uh, I was in, actually in charge at the time. There was money going missing. It come into the last property office. It was always kept in a drawer for two or three days, yeah. and then whoever was in charge of the last property would then remove it to another safe 
keeping was nobody, we thought nobody would come in for it then. Mm. It was all tabulated and numbered, you could find yeah. it quite easily. Yeah. But anyway, this money was kept missing and uh, I didn't know what to do. And it was quite a serious thing, money missing in the police force then, because everybody was under suspicion. But anyway, we, at that time, there was a detention quarters above the old police station in Athol Street. And there were some lads in there in detention. They could climb out through the windows and down into Athol Street, down, clambering down the drain pipe in Athol Street. Yeah. They were going out into down the town and having chocolate and ice cream and that sort of thing. And then getting back up, climbing back up and going into their bedrooms right. again. And they were responsible for the money that was oh, missing. Yeah. Thank you, Hector Duff. These days, we have so many options if we want to communicate with each other. Messenger, WhatsApp, email, text, FaceTime, Zoom, and of course, a phone call, dialing directly to any country in the world. So with this in mind, maybe it's appropriate to go back to Arthur Underhill for a word on police communications back in the 1930s. When you were sergeant and above, you carried a stick and there were heavy canes and there were some of them, they were really wonderful, they were marvellous things. I can remember when I was at the initial training school, we used to go to Lancashire County and we got onto this business of instruction on truncheons and the sergeant said, now in the Isle of Man, he said, sergeants and above have sticks, he said. But he said, sticks, he said, all they're any good for are, are for stop dogs from piddling on your legs. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I remember one night, still night in the summer, everything had quietened down about just about quarter past one. Absolutely still. I was up at Port Jack trying property, checking doors to make certain it was secure. You always had to do before you went in for your supper. If the sergeant knocked a stick on the ground, mm. it resounded, and you, for, you could hear it for quite a distance. When he went on to a beat, he would bang a stick, and he'd get the constable coming to him. Well, I, I heard this, and I knew for a fact he was nowhere near me, but I could hear this quite clearly. So when I came back to the station, I said to the sergeant, where were you when you rattled your stick on the ground? I said at about quarter past one. Oh, he said, he said, I was out, I was at the Jubilee clock. He said, and I think, I said, he said, I struck the tram lines with my stick. And I could hear it as clear as a bell up in Port Jack. Yeah. As clear as a bell. A strange form of communication, well, that. We had no wireless. Or, or well, no. you had special phone boxes, didn't you? Ah, well, those came later. Okay, before then, then, what was the communication then? Nothing. You had to sort of get to somebody, some private person who would lend you their, their phone or go to a phone box during headquarters, but there, we, there was no communication, none whatever. But of course, when the, we got the pillars, 16 pillars, I can quite remember them, in those days they were red. It's only later when the police, the blue lights uh, became the signal of, of, of the police. Yes. They were red. They were very effective. You see, they had three sides to the on a pillar, and at the yeah. top there was a piece of metal, and yeah. it had three sides. One you um, undid with the key you had, mm -hmm. and you had a handset there, and you were in contact straight away with police headquarters. Right. 
one other side, it was on hinges, mm. and you any anybody of the public could pull that open, yeah. and somebody would say through through a loudspeaker, "Can I help you?" Yeah. And and you were, if we were in trouble or something, they would you, you'd tell them what you want, yeah. and uh, they would say, "Right, just stay where you are. I'll somebody with you in very shortly," and then the door would close again on a yeah. spring, yeah. and the other side was blank. The only trouble was, you had to visit these pillars twice in your tour of duty, once uh, before yeah. your supper or whatever uh, meal you had, and once afterwards, to check in to make certain you were there. Yeah. But the, I think you'll find that there's still one blue pillar in the entrance to police headquarters, Douglas. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes. It's there as a museum piece. It's just as a it? museum yeah. piece. Thank you, Arthur Underhill and Hector Duff. Next week, I'll be choosing from a store of great stories on lots of different topics told by Donald Gelling. But I promise you there's still lots more to come from Arthur and from Hector in the near future. So, as we close the door to the archive room just for now, this is Judith saying thank you for your company this evening. Stay tuned for Chris Quirk with Greatest Hits here on Your Manx Radio. And the last word... It's our favourite radio rambler to say... Anyway, till next week, so long, you sir. The nation stays.